Welcome to Tartan Talk with USA Kilts, our interview series where we chat with interesting people in the Celtic heritage scene, industry insiders, artists, influencers, you name it. Come with us as we highlight unique perspectives and inside stories. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the conversation. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Rosie Ween. She is the William Grant Foundation Research Fellow at the National Museum of Scotland. She is a fashion and textile historian focusing on 18th and 19th century dress. And she's the author of the book, Highland Style, Fashioning Highland Dress, circa 1745 to 1845. Dr. Wayne, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little about where you grew up and what drew you to Highland Dress and to this as your career. So interestingly, uh, as you might be able to tell, I'm English. I am not Scottish. <laughs> uh, every time I talk to somebody about my profession and my specialization in tartan and Highland dress, it's like, you don't sound like someone that would be studying this. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the northwest of England. Um, I came from a family of makers, so people who are really interested in textiles from a quilting and sewing perspective. Uh, so I always grew up with an interest in clothing and textiles. How did you find your passion within it? You grew up in a family of people who were makers and textile you know, weavers and whatnot, but how did you come into it? Were you involved in making things yourself as well, or did you just find the, the research and the historical aspect of it the most interesting? So I grew up in a family of makers, so people who are really interested in clothing, textiles, in particular quilting and sewing. Uh, and I was always sort of interested in that, but I was never particularly good at sewing myself. Uh, but when I went to university and I started to study fine art and history, I was really interested in the history of the making of textiles and the making of clothing and fashion. Uh, and as I moved through university doing a BA in history, an MA in 18th century history, and then a PhD looking at particularly the history of textiles and fashion, it just sort of naturally grew and grew and grew. And my thesis looked in particular at how people in Scotland and in America uh, have used textiles and clothing as an expression of their political identity and their patriotic identity, um, including the Jacobites in Scotland and their use of tartan and Highland dress. And then at the end of my PhD in 2018, uh, a job came up at the National Museum of Scotland, which was a research fellowship to look in depth at the tartan and highland dress collection that the museum has so it's perfect timing really uh, i finished my phd and just fell into a job that was my specialism uh, and i've been doing that for nearly five years now uh, and that's so rare it's so rare for um, people in my position phd students who have been specializing in something for so long to just get to do that as a living. Usually you get sent off to just do a lectureship in something that's tangentially related. Um, but no, it's been an absolute joy to work with the collection over the last five years. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it sounds A, a dream job for you. B, it sounds highly unlikely that it happens to many academics in that, in, <laughs> that you just happen into the exact right job at the exact right time. That's brilliant. So tell us a bit about your project with the National Museum and what you've, what you've done with the book. 
So my project started at the museum in 2018. It initially was a two-year project running from 2018 to 2020 to do a full reassessment of our tartan and highland dress holdings at the museum, um, which has a history going back to the founding of the museum in the 1780s. So it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's, um, it's a lot of tartan, it's a lot of highland dress, garments as well as things like weaponry um, and accoutrements. We also have things like prints, paintings, uh, the documents that belonged to tartan manufacturers such as Messrs Wilson of Bannockburn, as I'm sure many of your listeners and watchers will be aware of. Um, and that two years ended up spiralling into a bigger project. Um, <laughs> Because that two years, it was, it really showed the museum the quality and the diversity of the material that we hold and convinced our funders, the William Grant Foundation, uh, that there could be a book in it. Um, and so the next phase of the project from 2020 to 2022 was researching and writing Highland Style um, and that really was an absolute joy to do because I had been working very closely with this material, but I hadn't really had the opportunity to sit down and gather all my thoughts about it together into one volume. Also, from a public perspective, uh, getting that research out there is really great because obviously we want people to come to the museum and be able to use our objects for their own research and they can't do that if they don't know what's there. So the project's been really beneficial in that way. Um, we also had funding during that 2020 to 2022 period uh, to conserve many of the best objects in the collection. So suits of Highland dress dating from the 18th and early 19th century, which had never been photographed before or con conserved or photographed before. So all that work is now available on our Search the Collections public catalogue, again, for people in Scotland, but also around the world to get access to our collections in this digital way, which is very useful for people who can't actually visit the museum in person. And finally, in the 2022 to 2023 version of the project, we've been focusing on our contemporary collecting. So as I mentioned, we have an extremely large collection of tartan and highland dress, but we don't have very much material from the 21st century. Don't know why that has happened, uh, but it's not been an area that until now the museum has actively sought uh, to build. So we were given again more funding from the William Grant Foundation to start going out and acquiring uh, what's happening in Highland Dress and Tartan today so that we can record that for future generations of scholars who'll come to the museum and want to know, hey, what was what was going on in Highland Dress in the early 21st century? Did it yeah. just stay the same or did it start changing? It's, uh, it, it's a weird, <clears throat> it's a weird thought. Um, it, I kind of liken it to um, doing your family genealogy, your family history. You have to think of it before your grandparents and your parents die in order to get the most accurate data versus trying to figure it out yourself. I kind of think of this project along a similar vein where you need to 
be in it to have the best resources versus trying to figure it out 20, 30, 40 years later of how something was done or which particular makers were doing which thing, you know, back in the 1960s, 70s, it's much easier to do it now while you're in the middle of it versus trying to figure it out later on. Does that make sense? Oh, def oh yeah, definitely. So having worked on the collection now for nearly five years, one of the more frustrating aspects of it in what is a lovely job is provenance. So that understanding of where objects have come from and really it's not been very common in museum practice until the last sort of 50 years or so to keep rigorous records about where things were, were got, who made them. And so contemporary collecting, which is what we call collecting things right now, um, really gives us that opportunity to do rigorous record keeping, to talk to loads of people and get a very representative understanding of a particular topic at a particular time rigorously recorded. So that's going to be extremely useful for people in the future. I was talking to a, a Sporan maker recently about our collection of Sporans, and I was saying to him how we have loads of Sporans, 17th, 18th, 19th century, we're very strong in that area of our collecting, but hardly any of them have makers' marks on them. Some hmm. of them have um, the names of the previous owners perhaps scratched into them, sometimes right. dates which are important to the owner of those Sporans scratched into the metal cantles. But other than that, it's quite difficult to pin down exactly where these things were made, other than in very general terms. You could say, oh, there's a Sporan region, probably came from there. So, yeah, doing the contemporary collecting and being able to record that kind of information is extremely important. Absolutely. It's, um, I think we're probably better at that kind of thing today in marketing and branding versus a, uh, a more artisanal way of making individual one-off pieces where they weren't necessarily thinking of themselves as artists in their own right to be able to sign the work to sell something. It's an interesting, uh, interesting kind of tangent there. So let's dig a little bit into the history of tartan and the evolution of tartan. Where is the, where is the oldest tartan from? So the oldest tartan is quite a difficult thing to pin down exactly. And that's, I'm sure, exactly what you expected to hear. Um, because let's face it, uh, tartan is a checked cloth. Checked cloths are one of the most ancient forms of decorative woven textiles that you'll find. And it's found not only in Scotland, but also around the world in any kind of old ancient community which has weaving technology, right? So to talk about the oldest tartan is slightly problematic. <laughs> um, so for example, in the museum collection, uh, we have something called the Falkirk tartan. Um, as it has become known. Uh, it was found at an archaeological dig in Falkirk uh, within a Roman jar full of coins, and it was sort of stuffed in the, in the top, this um, piece of checkered cloth. And that dates from about 280 AD. Um, the fact that it's from Scotland, that it's a checked twill weave cloth, has caused some people to say that's the oldest tartan 
And in a way, sure, but you might want to think of it more in terms of a proto-tartan, if you want to go down that route. Um, or maybe just think of it as a tradition of checked cloth, which is, which is common around the world. And to think of tartan as something very specific, which really began to evolve in the way we understand it today in the late 17th century onwards. Not to say it didn't exist before that, but its origins are murkier and harder to pin down exactly. Yeah, that's that's kind of the point that I was driving at. Um, I was thinking of the, uh, the the Tarim Basin tartan, which is you know even even much older than that, um, found in a in a mummy's uh, in, in a mummy's grave or something in Tarim Basin in China, present day China. Um, it's uh, more to the point of exploring the fact that tartan, it's or you know checkered cloth if you will, wasn't necessarily Scottish within its origin, but it's come to be recognized, you know, so inextricably linked with Scotland current day. It, it kind of blows some people's mind that it existed before Scotland, but just Scotland has done it the best. <laughs> Arguably, <laughs> Scotland has done it the best. Um, I think it's definitely, yes, it's very interesting to think of a world without tartan. <laughs> um, it, oh, that, is that what I meant to say? <laughs> we, we we don't want to talk about a world without tartan. I need tartan. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, with that in mind, let's talk about a bit about the the evolution of the meaning of tartan within Scotland. So, how did it evolve from just a pretty piece of cloth through to this is a symbol of my clan? Well, there are conflicting views on this, um, but really tartan has been a part of Scottish Gaelic culture uh, since the late medieval period. It was really in the beginning more the preserve of, of clans, chieftains and their retainers. So people who would be high status within Gaelic society. And it was used as a form of power, a uh, display of sophistication and fashion. Um, there's been some brilliant work done on this by a uh, former curator of tartan at National Museum Scotland, um, Professor Hugh Cheap, uh, who wrote Wonderful Tartan, the Highland Habit. Um, so from the late 17th into the early 18th century, uh, tartan was still used in that way, but it was becoming more associated with that kind of warrior, martial Gallic culture, um, and where that overlapped with, say, Jacobitism. So used as more a, dis a display of political identity, patriotic identity, um, as well as sort of regional identity as well. The Jacobite rebellion in particular, 1745 to 46, and the subsequent ban on Highland dress, not tartan, uh, after the Jacobite rising, led to a period of tartan and Highland dress and its links to identity being sort of lost in the winds of, of time for a little bit. So between 1747 and 1782, the sort of regional links to tartan and Highland dress were altered quite significantly because the 
ban on Highland dress had an exception, which was uh, the use of it by the army, by British military, essentially turning what had been a symbol of regional identity, sometimes political identity, into a symbol of state because it was used in the service of the state. In the 1780s, there was a revival of tartan and highland dress as more a form of familial clan identity when the ban on highland dress was lifted in 1782. So from that point onward, you get a much more structured and much more, in some ways, mythic interpretation of tartan, tartan and highland dress as an expression of clanship. I don't think you can go so far as to say that those links were invented during that period, because there's clearly a much longer tradition of it within Gaelic and within Scottish culture more broadly. Uh, but it's really from the late 18th century onwards when you get that clan identity associated with tartan and Highland dress as we would understand it today and recognize today. Okay. It's, it's so uh, to restate what you're stating, um, the origins of it. A or murky, we all know that, um, which which must be extremely frustrating for for people like you who want to do a good academic job and try to suss it out, but it's difficult because there's no records that exist or minimal, um, which kind of evolved into a little bit of fam familial wearing of tartans, which then you know went into the political spectrum, which then were banned and then came back out of it with clan affiliations. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, whistle stop tour uh, kind of assessment for sure. Um, I think the the thing to remember is that at the beginning of the eighteenth, mid eighteenth century, you have a understanding of what tartan and Highland dress is in a very regional and almost quite secluded way. Like people outside of the Highlands were aware of tartan and knew that tartan was a Highlands cloth, but then in the later part of the century it has a, it has acquired different meanings quite a lot of different meanings and becomes more complex but the people involved in it you have very you have the same generations experiencing these things father to son so it's all within living memory for these people so to to say that it's um invented out of nothing and these traditions come from nothing is i think a misunderstanding of of that chronology yeah, it's a disservice to it and what the actual meaning a little, was. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It, I, think it, I think some interpretations have been overly simplistic. Fair. So let's dig into the Jacobite Rebellion a little bit. What role did Tartan play as a, a symbol of politics within that kind of time period? So Tartan has been associated with Jacobitism since the late 17th century, when you get the swell of support around James II, uh, because there was a period when there was a question over his succession. And supporters of James were called um, Jacobites, you know, Jacobus is the Latin. And because he was descended from the Stuart line of Scottish kings, symbols of Scotland, such as Tartan, which were seen as regionally specific to Scotland, uh, were picked up as elements that could be worn to show that political support for him as the rightful heir, rightful heir to the throne. And 
then you get into that period of the late 17th, early 18th century, when you have a lot of infighting going on about who should be on the throne uh, of what would become Great Britain. And the Stuart succession did not become that succession. Um, so then you get this whole movement, the Jacobite movement, which is rooted in that support of that original support of James and of the Stuart line of succession of that Scottish route, um, just be becoming associated with all of these symbols over a long period of time. So you have successive Jacobite rebellions, some say like four or five, <laughs> depends what you count as a, as a fully fledged rebellion um, between what we would call um, the Glorious Revolution of like 1688 up until the last Jacobite um, rising of 1745 to 6, where Tartan is periodically arising as a symbol of support just over and over again. The last Jacobite rising of 1745 to 6 is where it was the most prominent. And I can go into many reasons for why that is, but at the heart of it, um, what you have is the Jacobite court or the Stuart court, um, which at that point was based in Italy, trying to reassert their British identities. And at that point, after the Union of 1707, Scotland is a part of Britain. And so they were trying to exert a Scottish sense of Britishness by adopting things like Highland dress at the court in Rome, like Bonnie Prince Charlie wearing suits of Highland dress to go to a ball in Rome in 1743, I think it is. Um, and then once the rising happens, they bring that sense of wanting to express the Scotto-British identity is what it's commonly called, um, to the campaign so that they can show people that sure we have been away from Britain for decades we you know bon Bonnie Prince Charlie was not born in Scotland so he wanted to show like you know I, I, I have been away for a long time I've never set foot on this shore before but I do have a common route with you and that is my Scottish heritage and the way he would show that most publicly was through uh, wearing tartan and highland dress and his Scottish supporters were the most visible aspect of that um, of that because they followed suit. Um, it became the most visible aspect of it because perhaps the Jacobite rising of 1745 to 6 was the only one that actually made inroads into England. So previous ones hadn't. They'd been up in Scotland. The rest of the country weren't as involved in them. But with the last rising, they they got as far as Derby, turned back. And so you have reports of um, soldiers, Jacobite soldiers wearing tartan and highland dress in places like Manchester, being seen and feared for wearing what was a martial costume on the streets in England. So it becomes a more present, visible threat. And so... All of the satire, for instance, that you get around that period, like prints, newspaper articles, they're all honing in on tartan Highland dress as, oh, the scary Highlanders are coming. And then they lost and it continued to be used as a symbol of, of rebellion. It was seen as a symbol of rebellion and of potential danger. 
And it eventually, I would say, did lose those associations into the late 18th century, particularly with the adoption of Highland dress by the British military, which did a lot to rehabilitate it. Um, but you would always get that lingering sense of, oh, within living memory, Jacobites wore that. Jacobites wore that and it was scary and it nearly uprooted the entire country. So with the, the Act of Prescriptions in 1746, there was a 36-year period where it was straight outlawed. Um, how did that, and you know, you've spoken about the, the exception that they gave essentially to the military, um, how did the outlaw of Highland dress affect Highland dress as well as how did it affect Tartan? I know Tartan wasn't outlawed, but how did, how did the whole thing get affected by the act of prescription? So an, another topic which causes debate, there are, there are a few schools of thought on this. I'm of the opinion that the, the act of prescription came into effect very shortly after the rebellion failed in spring summer of 1746 and the wording of the act was quite detailed in terms of what they believed highland dress to be so it it, it applied to the dress it applied to accoutrements associated with the dress and there was some ambiguity as to whether it applied to tartan fabric itself so there are some wonderful, wonderful in research terms, um, letters between people who were supposed to be enforcing the law in Scotland saying, okay, there's this shepherd in a town that I patrol and he wears tartan as a blanket. Does that break the law? And would be getting a response saying, yes, I think it does because they're wearing it, you know, as a garment and tartan garments, it says tartan clothes um, aren't, aren't, uh, aren't good. But then you'll have other instances where you'll have completely the opposite interpretation, where the people who are making the decision, people like Secretary of State, Secretary General, that kind of thing, will go, no, in this instance, I think it's it's open to interpretation. They're just shepherds who are poor. We can't ask them to change their clothes. Let them have it. So one of the issues about talking about the act of prescription is understanding how regionally diverse um, it was, because there were some officers who interpreted it very diversely. And it was like anyone wearing any kind of tartan no, and some people who were more oh well i'll only see it as they're wearing strict highland dress they're wearing all the full fig they're the people who we'll arrest so there were arrests people were transported um to colonies abroad there were people who were fined so but then there were also people who were let off so it's a complex and and very interesting minefield to see how this was actually enforced and the real impact that it had. I think the major thing as well is, is the difference between Highland and Lowland. So the ban, depends how you interpret the, the act, applied to the whole of Scotland. And yet in the Lowlands, you would have people still trading in tartan clothes 
I in particular have worked on newspaper advertisements in Edinburgh newspapers during the 1750s and 60s when Highland dress is supposed to be banned and yet you see people advertising the sale or the loss sometimes if they've lost it and they advertise it and want it back um, of tartan garments. So in Scotland during this period it's it's a very it's it's a very diverse and complex picture. It's a it's a neat nuanced view that a lot of people <clears throat> especially when they're first coming to you know historical research and things like that kind of think in these broad brush strokes it's either on or off it's never a gray area it's never you know nuanced and it's it's neat to think of the nuance within it and how it's you know yes some were and some weren't it's just how the law was interpreted or if you have you know a an officer who's like eh that's just Joe, he's fine, versus somebody else who's good. like, no, 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 none of them. No one will allow any of it, no, no, no. Yeah, and I think that it's, uh, I think it's important to state people were arrested, people were persecuted for wearing tartan and Highland dress, and it's something that we can't escape from. That did happen. And as with many aspects of tartan and Highland dress culture, it elicits, it elicits a very emotional reaction, because of course it does. It's horrible to think of that happening to people just for wearing an aspect of their regional dress. So I completely understand why seeing and critically engaging with that gray area is difficult. Now, after, you know, the, after the ban was lifted um, or the prescription was repealed, uh, what happened to, I'm just curious, this is a little factoid, what happened to the people who were, you know, already, you know, out with Scotland at this point, the people who were arrested and kind of, you know, thrown away for, you know, was it five to seven years, I think they said was the term was, um, were they suddenly like, okay, you can come back now, it's cool, or was it, was it more, nope, you got to serve out the time, do you know? So this isn't my area of expertise, um, okay. but I will say that the ban was most rigorously enforced during the earlier period of the prescription. So in the late 40s up till late 50s. So during the period when the Jacobite threat was still very real. After the 1760s into the period when the Stuart dynasty was on the downturn, you didn't have figureheads to arrange campaigns behind. You get more of a relaxed attitude to Highland dress and tartan, which is one of the reasons that the ban was repealed. Um, and so you have much less enforcement and much less, I guess, people being sent abroad. Yeah. Um, so during the earlier period, you certainly have more people who were sent abroad for, for wearing it. Or the other thing would be uh, they would be enlisted into the military. So there were something which isn't commonly known about the act of prescription is that it was amended uh, a couple of different times to alter what the punishments were. And one of the later amendments was you will not be transported, you will not be fined, you will not be imprisoned, but if you're found wearing Highland dress or tartan, you can be sent into the military. Okay. So in kind of enforced impressment, essentially, um, because at that point, Highland dress had been so aligned to military service, uh, it was seen as 
just common sense uh, that yeah. they would be punished by putting into be, being put into the military. So that's another thing that's interesting about the act of prescription is that the punishments themselves changed over the period of its enforcement. It's kind of interesting that you could take the view, not saying that you do or I do necessarily, but you could take the view that the government took the symbol of the opposition and kind of co-opted it, made it illegal, then co-opted it for their own right. So the symbol of the opposition became their own symbol and they pushed it forward in a, in a weird way to some degree. I think you can certainly say that the British Parliament recognised the rallying power of tartan and highland dress, and particularly in its military applications. So I think there is some truth in what you're saying about opting to bringing the opposition symbol on board. Because, um, you know, if it works, why not use it for your own ends? Now, I know that some folks like to kind of like poke the bear, poke a little fun at the Scots by saying that, you know, do you know the kilt was actually invented by an Englishman? Now they're referring to Thomas Rawlinson. Um, and he was a, uh, a businessman who was English, moved up to the Highlands, and he's the one kind of, uh, for better or worse, um, credited with potentially taking Bending. half of the Philomore and making the Philobag, you know, basically the lower part of the great kilt and just wearing it so that you're unencumbered and can move in a factory. Um, what effect do you think um, Thomas Rawlinson had on the evolution of the kilt and where does he kind of fit in the arc of the story? So the Thomas Rawlinson and his story and what became known as the Rawlinson myth is a really interesting aspect of Highland dress history because People are always looking for the origins of the kilt. They're looking for the origins of tartan. And that can sometimes lead them to putting, in my opinion, a lot of emphasis on kind of selective evidence um, or only focusing on particular types of evidence. So as somebody who works in a museum, who works not exclusively, but predominantly with historical artefacts, I'm used to using a very different set of primary sources to do my historical research. So that's very different to say the authors who were writing in the late 19th or 20th century and who were really digging into the Rawlinson story and the Rawlinson myth, who would mainly be using uh, text-based sources, primary sources of um, archival manuscripts or newspaper debates, um, which is where the story of Rawlinson came from. It came from a 1785 article uh, that was recounting the story, allegedly by somebody who knew Rawlinson uh, back in the day. And that is, it's a story which can be credible, but it, can, it should also be seen within this broader spectrum of evidence. And that is where I think some scholarship in the past has fallen down. Um, but it's a very persuasive story, isn't it? It's a very, it's got an interesting character. It's got an interesting sort of oof about it. And, and that's fine. I don't, I think you can say that it's part of, it's part of the evolution, a very natural evolution that was going on in Scotland without his help. <laughs> um, so there's evidence in, in paintings and in 
evidence, there's some artifactual evidence as well, uh, to suggest that the tailored kilt, the sewn kilt, uh, came around in the early 18th century. He was doing what he was doing in the 1730s, so he's a part of it. Um, it's very difficult to find objects which are from that period which support that story because textiles and costume, as I go into in my book, are a very delicate form of primary source. So textiles and costume uh, degrade, they get used over and over again, they fall to pieces. So in our collection, the earliest example of a tailored kilt we have is from the 1790s. Now, that doesn't mean that tailored kilts didn't exist before then, but in terms of object evidence, that's kind of as early as we can go. But you can use other pieces of evidence to construct a story. It's, yeah, it's a long and complex process. So every, don't, every, I would say just don't pick on one story and say that's the be all and end all, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the other thing I find interesting about it is um, that people tend to overlook when you're looking at writing in general, so, you know, to some degree, is the motivation of the writer. And if there is a, a political reason or an angle or an agenda that they are trying to push, then that is going to inform the story. And then if it just gets accepted blindly without any kind of criticism or any kind of, you know, critical analytics, um, it just becomes fact where it may not actually have been that way. I would totally agree with you about that. So one of my biggest bugbears in the history of Highland dress is an article that was published in the 1980s by a guy called Hugh Trevor Roper. Uh, it was about the invention of Highland traditions. Uh, there is a lot to be said about invented traditions as a form of scholarship, because they definitely exist. Invented tradi traditions do. But his thesis around the invention of Highland traditions was extremely coloured by his political opinions and his dislike of Gallic culture, essentially. Uh, and yet it became a sensational piece of academic writing and informed a lot of scholarship that came after it. And there was a majority, particularly within uh, Scottish cultural studies, Gaelic studies of um, the 1990s and early 2000s, which were pushing back against him and saying, your evidence is really selective, you've ignored Gaelic perspectives and voices, you're just coming at this from a very English and kind of anti-Scottish perspective and not approaching it with sufficient nuance. And yet his article is still one of the most widely cited pieces of academic uh, literature on the subject. <sighs> really gets to me. <laughs> I completely understand. It's, it, is a, it is a difficult one to, to square when you're trying to be as accurate as possible and where people don't recognize their own biases in approaching a particular topic, which we all have. It's just part of human nature. We're coming from a particular angle, but when that's not explored as part of the equation, it does a disservice to history. Yeah, and I'm very glad to say that there has been a push over the last, particularly two decades, um, to discredit the um, invention of tradition argument around Highland dress and to take a more 
what you might call living tradition approach to it, which recognizes the nuance of human experience in the history of Highland dress and doesn't take such a narrow and selective approach to it. Speaking of inventing traditions, the most prominent figure in codifying Highland dress is probably Sir Walter Scott. So talk to me a bit about why his efforts were so important and how he achieved the efforts. So Walter Scott is seen as one of the most influential figures in modern Highland dress culture, largely because of his literary efforts with things like Waverley, so his historical novels, um, his historical research into uh, Scottish antiquaries, but mainly because of his role in the 1822 visit of George IV to Edinburgh, which he co-stage managed uh, with Colonel David Stuart of Garth, who was a major figure in uh, Highland societies of the period and patriotic Scottish societies. Um, so George IV was a huge fan of Sir Walter Scott. He loved Waverley, loved Rob Roy, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so when it was decided that he should visit Edinburgh uh, and make a big patriotic spectacle of his new um, dynasty, monarchy, uh, reign, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, Sir Walter Scott was seen as the perfect choice uh, to really roll the red carpet out. And the way that they decided to do that was to go full pageantry tartan, because at that period, clan tartans had become, become popular, had become fashionable, and the mythology of clan tartans was more widely known, more um, prominently seen in literature and culture of the age. So it found its way in to a national event, and it caused controversy even at the time because it was based in a lowland city where there wasn't a huge highland um, contingent. Contingent, that's what I'm looking for. Um, yes, not a huge Highland contingent, naturally. Um, so there was complaints that Scott had, had tartanized the lowlands uh, by inviting Highland chiefs and Scottish nobility to welcome the king in full tartan regalia. And it made a huge spectacle and made a kind of, it made national news, international news, and really put tartan on the national stage as a national costume. So up until that point, it had been seen as, oh, it's a, it's a regional costume. It's a military costume. It has all of these different associations with Scotland and with Scottish culture and Highland culture in particular. But in that moment, in that 1822 extravaganza of tartan and highland dress and clanship on like the full flow and full stage in edinburgh it became what you would think of as a national costume the emblem of scotland and it never really uh changed from that point i think people credit um queen victoria with making highland dress what we think of today and in a way that's true but really she was reacting to that 1822 explosion of tartanry, which Scott was qu quite a large part of, of making. But I think Scott is perhaps given slightly too much credit 
he himself was reacting to his own culture at the time. Like he was reacting to the popularity of clan tartans, to the fashionability of um, Highland culture that he had a hand in making, but he wasn't the only one doing it. So he was a product of his own time. So it's again coming back to that question of nuancing the story a little bit and thinking about Scott, but also about his wider network of people that he was involved with and was influenced by. Do you think that he saw that as what would be his legacy or his writings more or his preservation of Gallic culture uh, or Tartan? <clears throat> I think um, he got flack for what happened with 1822. He was in the middle of the controversy surrounding it. Like people said, Scott has turned us into a nation of Highlanders. So I can only imagine that that can't have been a nice feeling. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's hard to speak for a historical figure. <laughs> right. Understood. Sorry. Yeah. So another uh, another important couple of figures of a similar kind of time frame are the Sobieski Stuarts. Hmm. So how did they? Uh, how did, in your words, how did they affect Tartan more than kilts themselves, but how did they affect Tartan? And who were the Sobieskis? So um, John Sobieski-Stewart and Charles Edward Sobieski-Stewart, as they would have us know them, uh, they were what some would call pretenders to the Stuart succession in the early 19th century. Uh, they put it about that they were directly descended from Bonnie Prince Charlie, not verified. Uh, and they were quite popular figures in Scottish culture during the 1820s um, and 1810s. Uh, they made inroads with Scottish nobility and Highland nobility and really made a name for themselves being the people you want at your party as interesting oddities. Um, but they did do a lot of good research into the history of Highland dress. However, they did also do some less good research, perhaps a bit of bit fraudulent research into the history of Tartan. They so filled in they, some of the gaps. They just filled yeah, in the gaps. Fine. Yeah. Like I, I kind of like the Sobieski Stuarts, despite the bad rep that they get. Um, so they were behind the Vestiarium Scoticum, which is a controversial uh, book in the history of Tartan because it's seen as being a fabrication. So they claimed that it was based on a 16th century manuscript that they had discovered and which gave you know, descriptions of, of Tartans for all of the clans um, and even some lowland families. And um, they were never able to produce those manuscripts really for other people to see and to critique. And going back to Sir Walter Scott, he um, yeah, he wasn't impressed with them at all. He actually, just if you don't mind my reading a quote that he wrote about them to um, one of their supporters, Sir Thomas Dick Lauder, uh, he wrote to Sir Walter Scott in 1829 saying, oh, the Sobieski Stuarts, they've shown me this wonderful manuscript and it tells all about the history of Tartan and it's amazing and it shows that clan Tartans were like a late medieval thing. Oh. And Sir Walter Scott said that they were young men of talent, uh, 
great accomplishments, enthusiasm for Scottish manners, and an exaggerating imagination, which possibly deceives even themselves. So, you know, he he didn't think that their work was credible, and he saw them as being um, eccentric. But I think that the whether or not the Vestiarium Scoticum is real or not is is kind of it's a debate for the ages. And I know there's been a lot of work recently done by other scholars uh, in this area to try and not verify the Vestiarium Scoticum, but to sort of uh, diversify the discussion around it and perhaps make it a little bit more critical. Um, but I think the the fraud story around the Sobieski Stuarts has kind of um, eclipsed the other good work that they were doing. So, for instance, um, the second publication, The Costume of the Clans, uh, which was published in 1845, it also has its mythologies and its inaccuracies and all of that, but its illustrations are really fantastic um, for showing that like, they were based on things like old paintings, on you know old descriptions, so they weren't fabricated from nothing. Um, they were based on research that they had done. And uh, there are stories I know about how the Sobieskis were going to like, the British Library and they'd be recognised by their pencils with little crowns on doing their research in manuscripts. So in a way, they, are, they were serious scholars. It's, they're remembered for being these fraudsters. And I, what I would really like to see is a more critical assessment of the whole oeuvre <laughs> all the work that they did and and to yeah re revisit them agreed i find them very interesting as well because regardless of whether or not they were frauds they still had a massive effect on tartans and even if they did invent them you know the the vast majority of the of the tartans in the vestiarum scoticum um they're they're still in use today and they are now official you know they have been adopted mm -hmm. by clan chiefs so it's who are we to sort of say you know to judge them too harshly on certain things if it's still being used today and it's just become part of what is tartan yeah they have definitely become part of the tradition of modern tartan and you can't just throw them away because you don't like what they did yeah i the uh I liked, I think you made a point when in our discussion earlier about how it's a, it's, you have to think about them almost in relation to the, like the myth of, you know, Rawlinson. And even though there's, you know, there's certain aspects that are true or untrue, it is de facto now part of the story. So you can't just dismiss this or dismiss that because you don't like it or because there may or may not be enough truth or too much truth or whatever in the story it's still now part of the story yeah you have to engage with all parts of the story and not just pick and choose what you yourself like or wish to believe in and i think that comes back to just one of the aspects of tartan which is it is a very emotive subject it's a thing that people feel very strongly about and i completely understand that but i think it can lead to certain blinkered attitudes around aspects of tartan history understood now another key entity, I'll say, of the same time period is Wilson's Bannockburn. So as a mill, how did their uh, actions affect 
Highland Wear and Effect Tartan at that time. So Wilsons of Bannockburn were one of the largest tartan manufacturers in Scotland during the 18th and 19th century, particularly early 19th century. Um, they were based in Bannockburn, Stirlingshire, um, from 1750s onward. They were very influential for a number of reasons. Uh, during the 18th century in particular, they were a huge supplier of military tartans, so clothing the Scottish regiments. And from the very late 18th century onwards, they were at the heart of the creation of clan tartans and family tartans. Um, again, it comes back to that invention of tradition argument we've been talking about this whole time, but um, they have often been credited as the creators of clan tartan in almost a um, commercial money-grubbing kind of way. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, they just invented stuff so they could sell stuff and, you know, it's all hokum. And yeah, they, it was a again, a bit more complicated than that. So at the um, National Museums of Scotland, we have quite a large archive of letters related to the Wilsons of Bannockburn and the work that they did uh, to create tartans during the 18th and 19th century. We're not the only ones who hold this kind of material. There's also material in the National Library of Scotland, the National Records of Scotland, and also held by the Scottish Tartan Authority, as well as lots of other private collectors, because Wilson's is very collectible. Um, and when you look at archival evidence, what you can see is actually a really interesting collaborative approach between them as manufacturers and their customers during 1780s up until the 1830s of this collaborative deciding what tartan should be. So asking, for instance, for certain colours and arrangements of colours within the weave and assigning names like the customer assigning names, not just the manufacturer assigning names to patterns that were particularly popular in their region or in their families. Um, we also have in our collection some absolutely gorgeous drawings that were done by customers in the early 19th century, where they would send their own designs to Wilsons of Bannockburn to have woven. So they were very influential in popularizing family and clan tartans, not only in Scotland, but also in Britain more broadly as a fashionable commodity, and then also even overseas in America and in Canada because um, they had an international reach. But they weren't doing it on their own. Their customers also had their own opinions about what tartan should be and how it should be worn and the sorts of colours and, uh, and arrangements that uh, were the prettiest. The, <clears throat> this is almost a discussion in its own right, but the, the link between commerce and the end consumer or between people who are designing tartans and people who are weaving the tartans, what is commercially viable or not, um, and how designers, whether those are individuals or the mills themselves, kind of drive or help to drive what will become the fashion or the trends or the, the new tartans that exist. It's, it's as I said, it's, an, it's, it's a whole conversation in and of itself that we could have about that. We could, yeah, for sure. I, I think the um, 
the, the thing about Wilsons of Bannockburn is they were churning out so many tartans and they were doing it on a seasonal basis as well. So they were following the fashion seasons of the day. And so in a way, yeah, they were driving the consumer demand, but they were also responding to what people wanted. And is that any different to what's going on now? I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, it's people are people. And, you know, they're, you know, just because, you know, we look at it through, you know, rose-tinted glasses of history. It doesn't mean that they weren't thinking the same kind of things and, ooh, what's the next best thing and what's the new hot color this year and that kind of thing back then. It is still fashion within it, and it is still, you know, people trying to make money and, and survive in the same way that we do today. And a lot of times people don't think of the full story in that same way. Yeah. So something that I find really interesting for the early 19th century period is how historians and antiquaries were working with manufacturers to sort of authenticate the uh, the process of creating tartans. So people like uh, James Logan, who wrote The Scottish Gale in um, 1831, uh, he we have letters in our archive of him writing to Wilsons and requesting uh, samples of their work so he could write them into his book all about Scottish history and culture. And at the very back of the second volume of the, the Scottish Gale uh, is lists of here are the clan tartans, uh, here's how they should be woven, according, I guess, to Wilsons who send them, sent him the samples. Um, because James Logan saw that he, he thought it was too chaotic, like the industry was too chaotic and the people were doing all sorts of things, particularly after 1822 when Tartan got that huge fashionable kick. Um, so I love that kind of relationship, which I don't think is spoken about enough between historians and cultural aficionados of their day and these makers and how one could influence the other. We're having that discussion right now. We are, yes, yeah. <laughs> we, we are the living embodiment, the breathing example of this. Yeah. <clears throat> so one thing that uh, kind of popped into my mind, it's a question I have not researched and I don't know the answer to, but speaking of commercialism within it, when, when was the, the, when did ancient versus modern versus, you know, reproduction or weathered, when did those variations of a clan tartan begin? I don't, I don't believe Wilson's did any, you know, ancient versus modern variations. And I know that Dalgleish was the one in the 1950s, I want to say 52, um, who, you know, discovered the, the, the piece of fabric in a bar, you know, whatever, insert marketing story here, and, um, and came out with their reproduction colors. So somewhere between, you know, the, the 1850s and 1950s, ancient and modern color variations of a tartan came about? Uh, more of a 20th century thing. So the introduction of variations of, say, ancient, modern, weathered reproduction uh, into tartan manufacturing was definitely more of a 20th century uh, innovation. Um, I have researched this a little bit in relation to our own collections. So we have, for example, um, some reproduction fabric which dates from the 1910s uh, which was a collaboration between a guy called James Pittendry McGillivray uh, and Leeds University to recreate what he saw as the authentic 
ancient McGillivray clan tartan, but using uh, chemical dyes. So he was trying to recreate um, early 19th century colorways, but by using modern technology. And that is very interesting to me because he was trying to almost, he, he's kind of the precursor of that ancient ancient and weathered because uh, you see that becoming more mainstream in tartan manufacturing and highland dress advertising more from mid-century onwards but you still have this early version of it going on right at the beginning of the 20th century when there is a reaction i think against uh the prevalence of uh, aniline dyes like the the rise of um chemical dye stuffs artificial colors where it, it's a very different look and feel to early tartan, which was done with purely natural dye stuffs. Um, I like to think of, for instance, Wilson's of Bannockburn colours as being kind of dual tone, um, really bright, engaging. Then you have this, what I call muddy period, <laughs> uh, muddy and muted period uh, of experimentation with chemical and artificial dyes. Uh, during the late 19th into the early 20th century, and then a reaction against it by consumers and manufacturers who want to go back to that natural colorway. And then you start getting those variations of, oh, this is the ancient Campbell, but done with better improved chemical dye stuffs. Um, so it's a lot of technical innovation working alongside like more fashionable cultural desires um, because those muted colorways feel more historically authentic than um, modern and muddy uh, artificial uh, colors. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's just one of those things where it's, I never thought it, it's, it's so ubiquitous that, you know, when, when, when we get a, a, a swatch book from one of the mills, you know, you're going to have ancient, modern, weathered, you know, color variations and people ask about them all the time and why this and why that. But I never thought about the origin of that within it. Yeah, it, it's interesting how changes in technology are, I think, one of the drivers of change within the fashion industry. And tartan is part of the fashion industry, undeniably. So why would it be separate from it? You know that mentality why would it not you know impact what people are buying and wanting agreed now the 20th century has witnessed a lot of changes in highland dress as well so can you think of a few milestones or particular things that you you know stand out to you as a a watershed moment or something where it went from this to that within the 20th century the biggest change in modern highland dress culture particularly in the 20th century was the advent of hire so that made highland dress so much more accessible to people um, and it brought about a lot of stylistic changes based on the kind of fabrics and silhouettes that were available, different finishes of accessories, different price points of hire. So you get that from, I want to say the, the 1960s onward, really, is when you start getting higher industries. And then in 1980s, they really explode. And uh, hire becomes so accessible and um, popular, particularly in Scotland, for things like 
weddings, graduation ceremonies. And it kind of democratizes Highland dress in a really interesting way because prior to uh, the higher industry, Highland dress, particularly ceremonial, more formal styles of Highland dress, would have been more the preserve of people who could pay for it. So in our collection, we have catalogues from people like R.W. Forsyth or Paisley's in Glasgow, a big department store with Highland dress specialties, uh, selling quite high-end versions of Highland dress um, to people who are higher up the, the social ladder and have more disposable income. But then, yeah, you have this complete opposite going on. Uh, this was reaction against that at the end of the century, where Highland dress is suddenly a lot more accessible and a lot more visible in um events which aren't necessarily like national or military they're more personal events for people like for instance their wedding where they're getting married and they will have those pictures of them wearing highland dress for the rest of their lives but it's a highland dress which they can then return to the store after they've worn it um which is a lot more practical for most people because like for, for instance one of the huge bars for owning highland dress is storing it transporting it if you have a higher service, it's it's a lot more um, it's easy, isn't it? It's like you can pick it up one day, return it the other. Yep, and it's a lot more cost effective. Yeah. <clears throat> the thing that I find, um, let's talk about the the nineteen early nineteen hundreds for a minute. Um, mm -hmm. It's the thing that I find uh, fascinating is the the codification of that time period from like the early, you know, very, very late 1800s through about 1920 or 1930 of when you, today you think of, you know, traditional Highland dress, that's kind of the, the picture that leaps to your mind. It's not King George IV. It is, you know, a, a, a guy with a Prince Charlie on and that kind of thing. But that was just kind of invented, you know, as a, a, a bastardization of the regimental doublet. So it's interesting to me how it evolved in that period and in some ways kind of stuck what do you think that is so the is there's a broader question actually here around the influence of the military upon fashion in general so from mid 18th century onwards got a lot of war going on uh, in Europe, um, you know, not to downplay the seriousness of it, but you do have a lot of conflict, um, a lot of high visibility of soldiers in everyday life. You know, soldiers are bar in barracks in people's towns, soldiers walking the streets. Um, and that has an impact on civilian fashion. You see aspects of military clothing being incorporated into civilian dress. And the same thing happens with Highland dress. Like, a, like I believe, Highland dress is, is not separate from the wider world of fashion. It might be a very iconic form of costume, but it is not separated from uh, the wider fashionable world in any way, shape or form. So it seems very natural to me that, that it itself being a form of military dress as well as civilian dress that interchange of military elements and into the civilian doesn't surprise me at all. Um, particularly when you think in the early 19th century, how celebrated uh, Scottish soldiers were as part of 
the war effort. And, and that was a, a common theme that kept coming up during the Victorian and into the Edwardian period. And, um, yeah, like the Highland soldier. He's very visible. He's very patriotic. Uh, so, yeah, that, that military aspect of it, how could it not become codified as part of it? Interesting. So one of the things that I love about what your work is doing and what the, the museum is doing is they're connecting the dots through Highland wear over time. It's not just a snapshot of how it was done in the 1700s or 1800s, but you're trying to pull it the thread through all the way up to, you know, to the current day. And for the viewers, how Dr. Wayne and I, you know, got connected was through her research of contemporary kilt making. She contacted us about, you know, our company and about what we see as trends in the US and, you know, worldwide, not just in Scotland, which I think is a credit to them and trying to see how it fits into a broader picture worldwide. So I am very, very curious. How is your research going? Can you give us any sneak peeks? So yes, our um, our project is going extremely well at the moment. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, our current project, which has been running for a few months now, is to document contemporary Highland wear, not just within Scotland, but also internationally, and trying to acquire objects for the collection, which will build a representative snapshot of what's going on in Highland dress in 2022 to 2023. And so far, um, it's been extremely successful. We've met with many makers, uh, including you know, weavers, as well as Highland outfitters, kilt makers, tartan designers, accessory makers, you know, people who make sporins and kilt pins, that kind of thing. Um, and it's been wonderful to see how diverse and active this uh, this network is because I think there is a maybe a perception from the public that it's um, not very active that it's a kind of static industry that hasn't changed very much but that couldn't be further <laughs> that you know it's so active it's so interesting to see like new innovations that people are doing uh, and how responsive Highland wear is to just general you know men's fashion like contemporary men's fashion um, so yeah, we are currently working with uh, several individuals uh, to bring new examples into the collection to make it more representative. Because until we started this project, the, the latest Highland dress outfit we had was from the 1950s and it was made by uh, an Edinburgh outfitter. So you know, a lot's happened since then and <laughs> we need to catch up. Um, and it, yeah, it's going extremely well. Now, you've said that Highland wear is not just a snapshot in time, but it is a living, breathing thing. And I could not agree more. The other thing that I've kind of sussed out a bit is that it is, it is part of fashion and it is cyclical. And what happens is, you know, it's always you know, no matter what is happening in today's fashion, it always draws from history. So that being said, and from Highland wear history specifically, mm -hmm. so that being said, of all the time periods you've studied, what is your favorite period? Like build your dream outfit, or is there an outfit that exists in the museum that it's like, oh, this is the one, that's my, that's the white whale. <clears throat> well, for me, 
maybe I'm biased because I'm a historian that largely studies the 18th and 19th century, but I, I tend to think that the period from 1780 to 1830 is the most exciting period in Highland dress because it's when you get the most experimentation in, in tailoring and in fabrics. Um, so many of the, um, and accessories, I should say as well. So many of the best costumes, in my opinion, in the museum collection date from this period. Um, and my favorite, oh, so hard to choose, uh, is, <laughs> is uh, probably one which dates from the 1820s and it's made from Macintosh hard tartan, very fine quality, probably Wilson's of Bannockburn. Um, and it is beautifully cut uh, from jacket to kilt to plaid. It has been cut with an eye to pattern matching like I've never seen. So that's something you don't really get very often in contemporary Highland wear is uh, playing with tartan as a pattern, right? Like it's it's not trendy, I guess, to go around in full tartan from head to toe and to have it like beautifully mirrored along seams. But in these, um, in particular, this jacket, um, jacket and kilt and plaid ensemble from the 1820s, every seam where it joins, you get kaleidoscopic meetings of tartan. So it's never used as just straight grid. It's always used to create an entirely different pattern. And um, that is probably why it's my favorite period in Highland dress history, that meeting suddenly of a really interesting gridded pattern with new kinds of men's tailoring, which are very form fitted and structured and which use a lot of interesting seams, particularly along the, uh, the back of, of jackets and, sh and sleeves and things. Um, I mean, that's interesting with any kind of patterned fabric, but with tartan, it just really sings. I agree. I'm, I'm curious if your opinion changes as you get new pieces of contemporary uh, Highland fashion, because I have seen a lot of, I've seen a huge uptick in, you know, tartan jackets, tartan vests, things like that. People peacocking a bit more, so to speak. Um, so it may be coming back around. Who knows? It, it may be. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. Some contemporary Highland wear uh, that I've worked with uh, has been extremely gorgeous and, and interesting for different reasons other than pattern matching. Um, what I am really interested in in contemporary Highland wear is the use of other fabrics other than tartan. Um, so I'm loving the use of tweed and in some cases denim, leather uh, to create interesting kilt shapes. Um, and it's really experimental. Like there are some people who've been working with who use only like secondhand or dead stock fabrics. Uh, so I'm trying to make more sustainable uh, forms of Highland wear, which draw upon existing fabrics rather than using um, newly woven things. So yeah, it's always changing. There's always new innovations. And that's one of the most exciting aspects of studying it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. The intro music for Tartan Talk is Irish Coffee by Giorgio De Campo. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. If you like the show, it would really mean a lot to us if you left a rating since it helps new people find our show. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava.